Well, the guys mentioned Pastor Rock's sermon from earlier in the month entitled The Right Side of Giving, and I do want to encourage you. So many have commented on that message and, and its significance. I want to encourage you to go out to our website and, and view it there. Uh, but we've also prepared it in print version. And that print version is available on the website on the Expanded Influence and Faith Campaign page. We've also, for those of you who don't do computers, we made some copies and put them in each of our lobbies today. We want you to get a hold of that message. It was a good one. Well, this being Father's Day weekend, our time in God's Word would often revolve around the theme of the holiday and helping men honor the Lord in the vitally important task of fatherhood. But today I want to take our study in a different direction. Rather than focusing on the role of human fathers, I'd like us to turn our attention to the wonderful provision our Heavenly Father has made in addressing a universal question that has troubled human hearts since the beginning of time. The question is simply this. What will happen to me when I die? Is death the final chapter? Or is it the beginning of a whole new story beyond the grave? Regardless of how you might answer those questions, this much we all know to be true. In our broken and sin-scarred world, mortality is a terminal condition affecting every man, woman, and child. And in this present age, it will continue to be 100% fatal. Now, some of us may try to run from the implications of mortality. We're like the old king, French, French king, Louis XIV, who refused to allow the word death to be spoken in his presence. But running and hiding doesn't change the ultimate outcome. For, For like the sleuth in the familiar children's game, hide and seek... Eventually, the call of death rings out. Ready or not, here I come. But alongside this portent of doom runs a second universal human reality. For the eternal God has put in the hearts, has put eternity in the hearts of the beings, men and women, he has created in his image. We know this also to be true because in every time and every place where people have lived, they've lived with an innate sense that there is a life after this earthly one. Ancient Egyptians hoped to live in the field of reeds beyond the grave. Buddhists foresee an endless cycle uh, of death and rebirth. Throughout human history and every culture, there has been this instinctive sense that to quote singer Celine Dion, My heart will go on and on. And so today, our study in God's Word takes us beyond the constraints of this life to a time and place the Creator God has prepared for those He knows as His children. Today, we want to ponder the biblical hope of a place called heaven. To launch us into our study, I'd like us to consider two short verses found in two of the great chapters of the Bible. The first comes from Paul's first letter to the young church at Corinth. There in the 15th chapter, the apostle addressed himself 
to the question of life beyond the grave and what has become known as the Bible's great resurrection chapter. Look with me, please, at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, where Paul wrote this. He said, if in Christ we Christians, if in Christ we have hoped, have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What a striking statement. If our hope in Christ is for this life only, we Christians are a pitiable lot. Our second text comes from another great chapter in the Scriptures, Hebrews chapter 11, also known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. There in verse 16, speaking of the Hebrew patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had received God's promise of a homeland for their descendants, a promise that was never, re- never realized in their lifetime. But the writer of Hebrews wrote this of them. He said, but, it is, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Last week, Pastor Rock used the words of an Old Testament prophet to challenge us to remember the big picture. And if we're thinking biblically as we remember the big picture, we will inevitably find ourselves desiring a better country. That's not a campaign slogan for the 2018 elections. Rather, desiring a better country is a theme drawn from our text today that will serve as the title of our message. Would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you tonight that the presence of the Lord is here. The Spirit of the Lord is here. The power of the Lord is here to change and transform us. Would you use your word to do that? My words can't do that, Lord. Your word can. Would you use your word and plant the seed of your word in each heart tonight that we might leave from this place different people? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we turn our attention to God's word tonight, may the Lord be with you. Well, 1984... That year saw the emergence of a cultural phenomenon. Today, we might call her a rock star. But to say that she was an unlikely celebrity would be an understatement. For prior to her time in the spotlight, Clara Peller was, Clara Peller was just an obscure 81-year-old manicurist struggling to cope with ongoing health issues. But by a twist of fate, she was cast in an innovative television commercial produced by a third-place company that was trying, to, trying much harder to gain ground on its larger competitors. Because of her breathing issues, Clara couldn't even say the whole line that was planned for her without pausing. So the producers shortened her line to just three words. But those three words became a catchphrase for a generation. They found their way into a presidential debate, and they increased sales for that company by 30%. 
Now, if you were around back in the 1980s, you may have already guessed that Clara's ad was a promotion for then fast food wannabe Wendy's. And her famous line, where's the beef? immediately made viewers hunger for a a big, fresh, beefy Wendy's burger instead of one of those little frozen patties at the home of the Big Bun. Do you remember that? Well, in addressing the Corinthian church on the matter of the next life, the Apostle Paul didn't use Clara's famous line in his argument, but he might well have Where's the beef in our hope as Christians? That's what Paul could have said rhetorically. Listen, brothers and sisters, to the apostle's own answer. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, had the great apostle lost his blooming mind? Had he suddenly forgotten the love of Christ that we can know and experience in this life? Had the grievous grievous sins from which he'd been forgiven, even as a persecutor of the church, had all of that somehow slipped his memory? Had Paul dismissed the peace of Christ and the joy of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ that are the fruit in this life of the Savior's indwelling Holy Spirit? Actually, as he penned those words to the Corinthian believers, I don't think Paul had lost sight of any of that. I don't think he'd lost sight of any of the blessings that we know in Jesus in this life. Rather, I believe he just wanted God's people to know that as incredible as our hope in Christ is on this side of eternity... This present hope is like that tiny little burger at the home of the big bun. Now, the great weight of our hope in Christ, brothers and sisters, lies beyond the grave. And Jesus' own resurrection is proof this hope is real. It's not just happy talk or an empty promise. In matters of faith, Claire's question is still relevant. Where's the beef? The beef in our Christian faith is in the hope to live forever in a better country, a heavenly one. Now, if this is true, isn't it curious that at least in our American church context, the hope of heaven is, while it's much mentioned, it's far too little appreciated. And the reality is, if you take funeral services out of the the equation, we don't really even talk or think much about heaven at all. Paul said this is so important. Apart from this future hope, we Christians, we're a pitiable lot. And we say, I don't really want to think about what happens when I die right now. It feels kind of morbid. Maybe I'll think about that someday, but someday rarely comes. Where are the Christians who, like the 18th century American preacher Jonathan Edwards, 
made this resolution while he was still a young man. He said, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. This life is just a prelude and a preparation for the next. We're strangers and sojourners in this world, Paul said. Our home, brothers and sisters, is in another place. Knowing this to be true, our thoughts of heaven should leave us childlike with anticipation. Daddy, how much longer till we get there? Would that our hearts were so full of assurance in in our heavenly Father's promise of a better country that the thought of it, the mere thought of it, would leave us like kids on, on Christmas Eve. So why then do so many of us find it hard to nurture a longing and desire for heaven within our hearts? Why do we think so little about the better country the Father has planned for us? Let me suggest some possible reasons. First, I believe we often struggle to set our minds on things above, Colossians 3, 2, because the gravity of our culture pulls our hearts to love the things below. The scriptures say, set your mind heavenward, but the culture of materialism pulls your heart toward earthly things. That's why most of us spend a lifetime planning and saving in special funds for 15 years on average of retirement and spend far less time and effort planning and investing treasures in heaven for an eternity of happiness in the other world, as Jonathan Edwards described it. I loved the story Dr. Stanko told at our Next Gen Dinners last month. During the offering time at a church conference in South Africa, he looked down and there in the offering basket were a pair of men's shoes. Sure enough, a man in the congregation who had no money to give didn't want to miss the privilege of participating. So he gave the only thing of value that he had, his shoes. Our South African brother went home barefoot that day. But clearly, the world's stuff, or lack thereof, didn't own him, didn't control him. Now, don't all of you go putting your shoes in our little basket today. (laughs) We didn't ask our ushers to bring the Fabrice. But let's all learn from the example of our African brother who had a good understanding of the right relationship between earthly possessions and eternal reward. For the truth is, our view of heaven can grow strangely dim if we allow the glitter of this world's trinkets to blind our hearts to the treasures of the next. But there are other reasons we struggle with desiring a better country. For there's so much we don't know about heaven that we're tempted to fill in the blanks with thoughts drawn from many sources, not all of which are biblically informed. Human misconceptions abound. 
Devilish deceptions strip heaven of its joy. And hitching our imaginations to the stories of people who have had a near-death experience is no substitute for grounding our hope of heaven in the sure foundation of God's word. For example, when you're mindful of the big picture outlined in scriptures, you realize that our present-day thoughts of heaven must account for a future in which God's plan for the ages is still unfolding. History continues to be his story. And Christ's return, his second coming, will forever change the landscape of both heaven and earth. How so, you might ask? Well, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Peter gave us an important clue when he said Christ's return would be, and I quote, a time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophet, prophets long ago, Acts 3.21. Restoration management is God's specialty. No one does it better. And that's whether it's restoring people or restoring his creation. More future details about the big picture are added in Revelation 20, chapters 21 and 22, where the scriptures describe a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. There is an Eden of old, the scriptures say, the dwelling place of God will be with man. Author Randy Alcorn summarized the big picture this way. He said this, Christmas is coming. We live our lives between the first Christmas and the second. We walk on disputed turf between Eden and the new earth, not that far from either. The dispute will soon be settled. Christ will reign forever over the universe, and we will reign with him. Cue the fireworks. Well, that's a far cry from the popular misconceptions about heaven that celebrated cartoonist Gary Larson captured in a classic Far Side comic strip. Larson's drawing showed an old man with wings and a halo sitting on a lonely cloud. Bored look is evident on his face and captured with this thought. Wish I'd have brought a magazine. The cartoon speaks volumes. If heaven exists at all, it's an unreal, non-physical, ethereal kind of place. It may feel lonely because none of my fun friends will be there. I'll probably be bored to tears forever. Comic, yes, but nothing could be further from the truth. For we're not destined to spend eternity floating on clouds, dreaming wistfully of lost pleasures on earth. On the contrary, we're created to live forever on God's new earth, fully restored to pristine perfection, with not a trace of the present death and decay to which we've all become numb. As a result, brothers and sisters, the very best things of this life will seem like the finger food of the next. 
Around every corner will be some new wonder to take your breath away. Several weeks ago, my brother invited me to go to the Pirates game for fireworks night at PNC Park. It was a bitter cold evening for a baseball game. And we were high up in the stands on the first baseline, freezing our big buns off. I almost left early, thinking no fireworks are worth this. Mercifully, the game came to an end. And as, and as preparations for the show started, Fred and I found ourselves nearly alone out in the cheap seats. So we decided to make our way out as far as we could go to the river's edge end of the stadium. There we could look down over the railing at the barge that would serve as the platform for launching the night's fireworks far below down in the Allegheny River. So picture this with me. Nothing was between us and the river below that served as a mirror reflecting every flash of light and color. And nothing but the river separated us from the beautiful city skyline lit up on a cold, clear night. And then the fireworks started, launched from below and bursting just right out there over the water in perfect view. Can I tell you, it was mesmerizing. How many decades of watching fireworks, and Fred and I both agreed, we'd never seen anything more stunning. This is what fireworks should look like, I told him. Not because it was the biggest, brightest, and best display, mind you. It's just that the setting was completely untainted by anything that could distract us from thoroughly enjoying the show. On the drive home, this thought came to me. Those fireworks were just a small taste of what awaits us every day in heaven. Wonders untold and unspoiled, designed by the very one whose creativity knows no bounds and no limits. God's better country, the new earth, Oh, my goodness, what a destination. I hope it's on your bucket list. And brothers and sisters, we won't float around that country like so many ghostly apparitions. No, we'll have resurrection bodies like Jesus' own resurrection body. He walked and talked, enjoyed meals with his friends in his resurrection body. So will we. But pastor, that's the heaven of eternity. After Jesus returns and the dead in Christ are raised physically to glory, what about now? What about the place now where Christians go when they die? Actually, that very question points us to an important distinction that may in fact be the cause of much of our confusion about heaven. The key point to remember is this. The heaven to which we go now when we die in the Lord, it's not the same place where we'll spend eternity with the Lord in our resurrection bodies. It's important to understand that. Let me explain it again this way. 
One day, all of God's children, everyone who by faith has embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, will spend eternity with the Lord on a new earth, a restored earth. It will be a physical place where God comes to dwell with his people. But now, the spirits of those who die in the Lord go from this earth to be with God in another place, to the, to the heaven where he currently dwells, absent from the body, at home with the Lord, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Some have called this place the present heaven to distinguish it from the future new heaven and earth of Revelation chapter 21. The present heaven is the place God has created as his temporary dwelling place awaiting the day of Christ's return and the culmination of history as we know it. Bottom line, as Christians, we can think of the present heaven as a temporary layover on the way to the eternal new heaven and earth. But to describe the present heaven as temporary is in no way to diminish its glory. Remember, this is the place that the almighty God who created the universe created for himself and chooses himself to dwell. It's the place where the resurrected Christ reigns with the Father in the company of angelic hosts. It's the place that Jesus described as paradise to the thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23. That alone should be sufficient to fill our hearts with anticipation. But know this, that word paradise is used elsewhere to describe these great walled gardens, hanging gardens of a famed Persian king. The present heaven must be a colorful and fragrant and fragrant and pleasing place indeed. You know, on the return leg of a short-term mission trip to Gabon last summer, our team of four was anxious to get home. For us, home was Pittsburgh, our welcome destination at the end of a long journey. But our airline itinerary put us in Paris for a 24-hour layover. The Eiffel Tower an evening cruise down the Seine River. It was torture. (laughs) Suffice it to say that all four of us thoroughly enjoyed every minute of that layover. I expect the same to be true of my journey into eternity. Should the Lord tarry, death will one day visit me. And in that moment, my, my spirit will immediately depart to be with Christ in this present heaven. It will only be a layover, however, while my physical body rests, awaiting a resurrection at his second coming and a home going to the new earth forever. Oh, what a glorious layover it will be, though. Finally, brothers and sisters, I saw a sad news story last week. The Pulitzer Prize-winning commentator Charles Krauthammer had released a public letter announcing his own soon-expected death. On a human level, it was a noble and moving expression 
from a man respected by many, including me, as an incurable disease now has him facing life's darkest enemy. My doctors tell me their best estimate is that I have only a few weeks to live, wrote Krauthammer. This is the final verdict. My fight is over. I leave this life with no regrets, he continued. It was a wonderful life, full and complete with the great loves and great endeavors that make it worth living. I'm sad to leave, but I leave with the knowledge that I lived the life that I intended. Now contrast Mr. Krauthammer's thoughts with those of the late Reverend Billy Graham who likewise in failing health wrote of his own anticipated earthly demise. Dr. Graham said this, someday he said, you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall never be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address I will have gone into the presence of God. Oh, the difference in living, brothers and sisters, to know that dying is not the final verdict. Our hope in Christ is not in this life only. Even in the face of death, for Christians, there's no pity required. Beloved, don't settle for big bun Christianity with the focus of your hope anchored only in the blessings of knowing Christ in this life. The beef of our Christian hope is the assurance that one day we will walk with Jesus forever in a better country. So don't be afraid to dream of what heaven will be like. Don't hesitate to anticipate it to desire it, to share the hope of heaven with those you love. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, Jesus said, Luke 20. Church, the home that you were made for, the home your heart should long for, is in a better country. It's in a heavenly one. Let's pray. This message today has really been to encourage the hearts of believers. But even as our heads are bowed in these moments, I'm mindful of the fact that there may be some here in this room that struggle with the idea of their own mortality because they've never settled life's central question. Am I a child of God? Do I know the Father who created me? Have I been forgiven? God's made a way for that. He's made provision for you to know him, to be one of his children, a child of promise, including the promise of a better country. You can do that. You can know him simply by reaching out by faith and embracing the provision for forgiveness and new life that Christ has offered. 
I'm just going to pray a brief prayer. And if this is the cry of your heart tonight, to know that death isn't the final verdict, that God has a place for me, that I'm one of his children, you just pray in your own words something like this. Heavenly Father, tonight I want to know that those promises, that good news of a better country forever, I want to know that those promises are for me. I want to know you. I want to be your child and know you as my father. So in these moments, I reach out and I embrace by faith the forgiveness I can know in Jesus. And I embrace the new life that he offers. Lord, set me on a journey that will last forever. I ask you to do it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.